Man of Steel answers insight commentary. Episode 20, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, teaser trailer one. I have so many questions. Then of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. In this episode, my first reactions to the official online teaser trailer, starting with a scene-by-scene breakdown and then some early thoughts about what it all means. This podcast dives deep into the DC Cinematic Universe to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the film that will make up the DCCU. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. (laughs) Welcome. I'm jet-lagged and exhausted, but how could I not talk about the teaser? It's important to remember that this is a teaser trailer and not a full or proper trailer. We are still about a year out and by no means entitled to this early look at the film, which is still undergoing post-production and ultimately going to be shaped in the editing room. But that said, what a teaser. Honestly, it grabbed me immediately. But it didn't leave me breathless the way some other recent teasers have. We may talk about that later. However, when I got my hands on the 800 megabyte version and started to unpeel the layers, I completely fell in love with it. Just so you know, I'm recording this part Friday evening after hours of flight, so I may be a little out of it. The plan is to make a second recording Monday night after the IMAX presentation and log those reactions. But let's break this down completely. But first, let's listen to that teaser. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? We, as a population on this planet, have been looking for a savior. We're talking about a alien whose very existence they are not telling us the truth. challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. Human beings have a horrible track record of Tragedy. following people of great power. power corrupts. And absolute power, power corrupts absolutely. Chaos. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right no, thing. We know better now, don't we? Devils don't come from hell beneath they us. They brought their war here. No, they come from the sky. The world has been so caught up with what he can do that no one has asked what he should do. No, 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 no. That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel.
The silver metallic branding of the Warner and DC logos is a spiritual successor to the metallic logos in Man of Steel, continuing in and through this world. There's no gaudy colors or character-specific branding, just heavy, weighted, serious logos, as if the embossed metal sign on a sculpted piece of art, rather than the branding that you see on a billboard with the side of a bus. It's a tiny thing, but it says, this film is important. At 16 seconds in, with only audio, we hear Charlie Rose ask, Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? The drum beats, and we see a monument before a modern city skyline, which may contain some buildings familiar to Chicagoans. But let's dive into Charlie's line. First, if you don't know who Charlie Rose is, he's a prominent journalist and the host of the PBS talk show, The Charlie Rose Show. When I was a kid, I would rush home from my bus stop so that I could catch his program. I was a weird kid. But his interviews were completely mesmerizing to me at the time. The completely bare set and lack of bells and whistles seemed like they left his guests' souls stark naked before him. And he would deftly navigate their lives with professionalism. He was even-handed, irrespective of his own views, and he's still among my top living examples of how I wish journalism would sometimes aspire itself to be. Sometimes. Anyways, so to me, his voice carries a certain dignity and weight and authority, that veracity of real life, and so what a perfect person and a voice to present a question devoid of visual distraction. It's a rhetorical question that signals for the listener, this is where we are going. And isn't this obvious? For me, someone completely on board with Man of Steel, its themes and the world that it built, absolutely. This is where we're going and this is obvious. However, for critics or detractors who want to skip to an unearned result, it's a good question to present to them and have them wonder and ask themselves. Is it really surprising? No, Charlie, it isn't. It shouldn't be. And why do some act as if it is? That the most powerful man in the world. And so... Here, Charlie, the moderate and intelligent voice of the people, acknowledges Superman's humanity by calling him a man, but also his power, the most powerful man in the world. That might be debatable with some nuance with respect to what power is or really means, but Charlie is laying out the world's perspective and who Superman is to it in shorthand, and then should be a figure of controversy. Exactly right. We too easily want things to fall into neat little boxes, but like anything really significant or really important in real life, there are going to be differing minds. I like that the film doesn't paint the whole world with the same brush, where they all share the same monolithic opinion. It confronts the reception of Superman within the film world and Man of Steel within our real world in the same breath that a real person or character of this import would naturally be divisive. Now, talking about the shot from a visual perspective, it is a smooth approach. Gone is the shake of the handheld camera. Here, they're going with a cinematic lens and a cinematic approach and leaving behind the journalistic camera of Man of Steel. And so the realistic themes of Man of Steel will carry forwards, but the look will be cinematically styled. The next line we hear is, We as a population on this planet have been looking for a savior. It's a youngish man's voice. This might be the same voice that later says, 
maybe he's just a guy. I want to attribute it to Scoot McNary, who can have this kind of voice, but doesn't typically. I also wanted to attribute it to Jesse Eisenberg as well, since it dovetails nicely into his other lines, but I don't think the voices line up. If I had more time, I'd cut them and put them side by side and compare, but I don't, so I won't. But let me know what you think, or if you can pinpoint the actors performing these lines. As the word savior echoes, we get a percussive hit and that striking image. Superman looking pensive, standing in a crowd of people, likely Mexicans, celebrating the Day of the Dead, a holiday with an amalgam of religious roots, accounting for the face paint, and they're reaching out to touch him. Their hands are extended earnestly and calmly, one might even say reverently. These aren't fanatical, shrieking fans climbing all over one another to touch a celebrity idol. There's a quiet solemnity to their outstretched hands. No one is smiling, which is peace full but also unsettling. The idea of receiving a blessing by touching something or someone holy can be found in Roman Catholicism, which Mexican culture predominantly follows. The image punctuates the word savior and triggers messianic images of crowds trying to touch Christ. Yet clearly, we're meant to be uncomfortable with the deification based on Superman's expression, the ominous music, the echoing and haunting voiceover, and the ghastly death mask makeup of those in the crowd, which is fine within their culture, but outside of it, it creates a creepy surreality. And finally, the sickly yellow light cast over the scene. This shot reinforces the idea that this will be a stylized film. The yellow on Superman's crest pops impossibly. Note that despite Superman's expression, he's calm and not panicked or attempting to retreat. While he may be learning to deal with these kinds of situations, he's developed a maturity where he can stand confidently in a crowd, even under uncomfortable circumstances. This distinguishes him from rookie Superman in Burns' Man of Steel or Morrison's action reboot, where Superman couldn't handle crowds at first. This Superman has grown past that. Then we get to the voiceover from the second beloved authority, celebrity astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who says, We're talking about a being alien whose very existence they are not telling us the truth. challenges our own sense of priority in the universe. First, like with Charlie Rose, you don't need to agree with everything Dr. Tyson espouses, but both are great communicators and ambassadors for their fields. Dr. Tyson hosted the reboot Carl Sagan's Cosmos series, and he's a part of New 52 Superman continuity, assisting in finding Krypton in Action Comics 14. He absolutely would weigh in on the significance of Superman in the real world. I'm really crazy tired, and we're only 30 seconds into this two-minute trailer. So Tyson is a little less diplomatic than Rose, calling Superman a being as opposed to a man. We'll talk about those overlapping voices in a bit, but Tyson uses Superman as a talking point to challenge human-centric thinking, often attributed to Western religion. So again, tying to religious themes. So we're already getting many sides of every idea. Superman as a man, Superman as super, Superman as a being or alien other, Superman as a deity, and reinforcing 
the belief and desire for worship. Superman's existence as a challenge to the underpinnings of some religious views, but Superman's very appearance as implying religious views. We'll get to that when we talk about the statue. So be advised, I'm not saying at all that these ideas will be explored fully or thoroughly in the film. That would be probably a pretty dry talking head documentary, but these ideas are in the background texture for how the world is being approached by the filmmakers and how we're supposed to understand it and fodder for thought and analysis after the fact in podcasts and websites like mine. You may get a brief shot or segment of Charlie Rose and a round table with Lex Luthor and Neil deGrasse Tyson, but that's not going to be the whole film, and those questions are not going to be fully resolved, which more than anything else selfishly excites me about Batman v Superman. Because any film that gives me something to chew on with a side of sci-fi and genre stuff that I enjoy is what I adore above all else. It engages my mind and my research and my writing in ways that more passive entertainment does not. So I am thrilled we're going to get a throwdown and action and character and drama, but I also can't wait to analyze and explore all the ideas that are going to be raised by Batman v Superman. <laughs> uh, man, I am rambling. Uh, where was I? Um, <laughs> uh, I probably could talk about, I could talk more about cosmology and extraterrestrials and religion, but let's talk about the overlapping voices. As a general rule, overlapping voices is a no-no because it's confusing and disorienting and can be unclear. And so we start to understand that its use is intentional and meant to reinforce the unease we feel with the ominous music, sympathizing with Superman's pensive expression and so on. When Dr. Tyson says, we're talking about a being, a second angry voice says alien over Dr. Tyson's being, a none too subtle way to reword the sentence as we're talking about an alien. Obviously not Dr. Tyson's view, but a view shared out in the world. We hear a nervous woman who kind of reminds us of Pete's mom say, they're not telling us the truth, and an angry man saying, this is our planet. The relative volume and continuity reflect the strength of the voices in a sense. So while the world at large may feel more like Charlie Rose or Neil deGrasse Tyson, there are some angrier, quieter, but no less audible voices speaking out in condemnation and concern about Superman. There's literally no way that you get all of the audio coherently and memorized watching this teaser through just one time, which is arguably the way that it was meant to be received, but I don't know about that. I'm kind of starting to suspect that Snyder intends his films to be watched multiple times to be appreciated. It's a different kind of filmmaking with its own kind of merits and drawbacks, but I appreciate both. The film that delivers a visceral experience but doesn't hold up under scrutiny and repeat viewing, and the film that has layers upon layers to pull back and explore, but with those layers not readily apparent in just one viewing. What am I saying? I think I've just derailed myself. We need to move on. We get another transition and we hit the Russian rocket. The rocket is clearly Russian from the flag and the Cyrillic writing spelling out the Ruscosmos or Russian Cosmos for Russian Cosmonaut Program. Remind me to sometimes discuss the difference between a cosmonaut and an astronaut, but 
not now. I don't recognize the logo, but the rocket appears to be a, a Soyuz model, which can have a manned space capsule, but is descended from a line of intercontinental ballistic missiles. This is one of the shots that I've come around on a bit after watching the teaser repeatedly. On first blush, the shot didn't work for me in the sense that it lacked the effortless majesty and artistry of Superman lifting stuff elsewhere in media. It's hard to communicate realistic lifting of massive objects, as we discussed back in our earliest episodes, so they seem to avoid showing it in Man of Steel until they could find a way to communicate it. And here it seems rather direct. The shot is square on, Superman is on the ground, so we don't get a full sense of the object being held. Is it the entire rocket or just the upper portion or what? The golden glow and the crazy amount of particulate in the shot gave it some of that stylized and artificial blush which didn't work for me here in an extraordinary scene where I wanted some grounding. But then I started to learn things from this shot and like it more and more. First, let's talk about the full view of the costume. It's great. The colors, they pop. The changes are subtle. It seems a little bit more metallic and shiny, catching more light, and it works. The abs may have a little too much definition with the shine, but that's really minor. Now, let's talk about Superman's exertion level. He has come a long way from roaring at the oil rig to hold up that derrick and yelling at the world engine to now potentially holding up some part of 750 tons only to purse his lips a little bit. If Superman is indeed holding up that much weight and not punching through the rocket, it suggests he's developed that key traditional power that allows him to lift impossibly large and massive objects beyond what their own structural integrity would allow. Later in the teaser, we see a suggestion that Superman has evolved his flight power some, which could mean that he's developed that more traditional super speed that doesn't cause collateral effects interacting with objects or the environment at super speed. Between that and the ability to lift oversized objects, that vastly increases the kinds of things that are, in this world, a job for Superman. Which is great. A flying strongman is of limited use if he can't actually meaningfully apply his strength to things, especially if he can fly while doing it, which we haven't seen yet but is almost certainly developed by this time, given the growth of his powers. Although the whole thing is very stylized, the composition allows for all sorts of tiny things like Easter eggs. And I don't know if it was intended or not, but you do have the 003, which if you read in reverse is 300. And obviously that is the movie which was Zack Snyder and Larry Fong's breakout movie. Now, speaking of a job for Superman, this shot perfectly portrays that. There are many problems where humanity can still do for itself, but that creates a question of whether Superman should even intervene. But accidental disasters stemming from human aviation are rarely controversial. Superman is an international or global hero, so far that his presence is suggested in Mexico and in Russia, meaning he goes where he's needed. I've argued or will argue that Man of Steel lays some groundwork for Superman to reasonably remain more domestic than abroad. Broad, but only as general guidance, not as an absolute rule. And it's good to see that his altruism isn't limited to the United States exclusively. So this scene demonstrating Superman's great power is accompanied by the line. 
human beings have a horrible track record of Tragedy. following people of great power. Human beings have a horrible track record of following people of great power, along with a woman's overlapping voice saying tragedy. Holly Hunter, rumored to play a senator, completes his sentence, but we'll get into that in a bit. The speaker sounds a little like Cavill's Clark Kent, but pitched up and a little more nasal. Maybe that's a hint that Metropolis Clark has taken on some of the traditional affectations of that disguise. If it is Clark, speaking as Clark, the criticism is less of Superman and of humanity, phrased as human beings. Most likely, the line is out of context, but taken as such, Clark is leveling a judgment against humanity for idolizing Superman. And so again, the theme of following Superman is raised, and we can begin to make out the statue of Superman, which you may know was in large part a practical effect. In other words, they actually built that statue. Two quick notes. The line of trees gives us a sense that this monument might be in a park, which might support my theory of of Ground Zero being rebuilt into a park instead of skyscrapers. Second, we can begin to make out the monument of Superman, posed in a way that is perhaps evocative of Michelangelo's masterpiece in the Sistine Chapel, The Creation of Adam. Superman has one hand upturned to the heavens, but the other hand with a finger extended towards the earth and mankind, a bridge between heaven and earth. Not spiritually necessarily, but between a people from the stars and to the people of this planet. But it could also be seen as embodying both roles of God and man, and thus a Superman. I am by no means an art scholar or critic, so if you've got background in such analysis, definitely share your thoughts. For the rest of the voiceover, we have Holly Hunter paraphrasing Lord Acton's famous remarks that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Chaos. In a world of soundbite slogans, it's unsurprising that the modern rendering drops the tends to and merely insists that power corrupts. It loses some necessary nuance, but nonetheless, that's sometimes the mission of the politician, which Hunter is rumored to be portraying. Incidentally, Lord Acton's pronouncement was made in the context of theological writings, and so again, the theme of of religion remains throughout. We get female overlapping voices saying terror and then later chaos, and there's a mild electronic distortion to the voice, which suggests that these words may be spoken through or on a TV in a manner similar to the TV anchor person narration in Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. From here, we go to another incredibly provocative and intriguing image. Superman in a yellow lit hall with an uneven dirt floor and a graduated ladder behind him perhaps in a bunker, mine shaft, or something similar. His face is grave and frowning. Two pairs of fully armed paramilitary decked head-to-toe in black, dehumanized with not an inch of skin showing or their eyes visible, seem to kneel before Superman simultaneously and bow their heads. On their shoulders, the space typically reserved for a flag to which you pledge your loyalty or the insignia of your unit is instead the crest of the House of El in red. They don't turn their weapons on Superman, but instead bow down. This is more than Superman cooperating with the U.S. government troops who wouldn't discard the American flag for Superman's shield. Even if there was mutual respect or deference to Superman, American troops wouldn't bow their heads in this matter. Just imagine for a moment Colonel Hardy. Could you ever imagine him behaving like this to Superman? So for those who fear that this is a government goon squad, I don't think the image lines up. Instead, 
what we're getting seems to be that continued theme of worship. The question is whether this is real or unreal, and if it's real, what's the context? At this point, we've already seen several stylized sequences, and in Man of Steel, we know that everything we see isn't necessarily a reliable version of reality. The example that should immediately leap to mind is Superman being swallowed up by a sea of blackened human skulls. And so if this is an unreliable image, then its logistics are a little less relevant. But if this is what actually happens within the reality of the film, then we need to speculate how, but for now, we're going to hold off and move on. The next thing we hear is... Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right no, thing. No. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. The voice might be Scoot McNary's, but maybe not. He can do a range of voices, some of which are really distinct, but his nondescript ones sound like this. Then again, if it's a nondescript voice, it could be anyone. This is one of the few lines in overt defense of Superman. And I just love that. Again, humanity does not speak with one voice. There are differing opinions, views, and corresponding depth and nuance. Visually, we're close up now and we can see the slabs behind the Superman monument as they are lit up by spotlights, which reveal that there is writing or etching on them, reminiscent of the Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., which bears the names of nearly 60,000 fallen. And then we hear Jesse Eisenberg deliver his first lines as Lex Luthor for our ears. We know better now, don't we? Devils don't come from hell beneath us. They brought their war here. No, they come from the sky. Quietly, smugly, sincerely, and with certainty, he says, We know better now, don't we? An angry voice yells, He's out of control. Devils don't come from hell beneath us. That line rolls off his tongue and into our right speaker. And then a broken and distraught voice says, They brought their war here. Then in our left speaker, Luther whispers, No, they come from the sky. You can imagine Luther standing behind the listener, bending over to whisper that line in their ear. In the Christian account, demons and devils are fallen angels. So, in a sense, they come from the heavens or the sky. Depending on your eschatology, I think that's the right word, or doctrine, I believe that the fallen aren't actually in hell until Judgment Day, despite the portrayal in popular culture. So under that reckoning, Luther is technically correct with respect to mainstream theology, but I doubt it's his intention to make that kind of point, or maybe it is. Religious literacy is an important lens for understanding culture, and apparently this film on some level, since the theme is raised over and over and over again in this teaser. But back to Luther, you know, I love Eisenberg's delivery. I love it. I admit I had some fears about the voice, but this is why acting is a craft. Speaking softly conveys an absolute self-confidence, certainty, and strength in his own words and his voice. He doesn't need bluster. It's easy to assume that he's speaking about Superman, but he could be speaking about drones or other extraterrestrials in sort of a backfisted way of insulting Superman while talking about a more general fear. However, the whispering makes me feel like this is an intimate revelation, something shared with a party who is seeing a Luther that isn't public-facing. Luther is also talking about knowing better, meaning that before, they thought that devils came from the hell beneath them. So what is that in reference to? What conflict or persons received the label of hell or devils, in which Luther thinks is better assigned 
to Superman. That's why this is a great teaser, because you can run scenarios on that all day, imagining different possibilities. The distraught voice talking about them bringing the war no doubt lost somebody in the Black Zero event. He likely recognizes on a rational level that Superman is not one in the same with Zod, but nonetheless his hurt paints them together as a common they. Zod brought war to Earth. But in the speaker's pain, he wants Superman to be accountable for it. It's a completely understandable and sympathetic feeling, even if it isn't a just or fair feeling, as we've discussed before. And I think we talked about this in Kissing at Ground Zero, but feelings can't always be helped, irrespective of what you know rationally. It'll be interesting to find out how Superman responds to such people. I know with complete certainty that he'll feel compassion for them, but we'll see how he fares beyond that. My hope is that we with the help of Lois and Martha, he doesn't take on the guilt improperly. The next image is beautiful and unsettling. A figure in the foreground is reaching out towards Superman, who's floating in the sky, backlit by the sun, which provides a halo about him. We've just been warned about devils from the sky, and now we're presented with an angel of light. The words are unsettling, but so is Superman floating, unmoving. We don't know the nature of the person reaching out, whether their reaching is legitimate or problematic, so it's likely that Superman is entirely justified in not responding to this physical plea, but we don't know or have those facts. Instead, we just have this sort of visceral reaction of you know, somebody reaching out and Superman not reaching back, staying apart, and even if entirely justified when we know the story, at this point it just seems like rejection. Again, we don't know if this is just a fan who wants to touch a celebrity, a crazy cultist wanting to touch their deity, or a person in genuine need. But Superman isn't immediately responding. The figure is quite ambiguous. They've got long dark hair, aged hands, and baggy brown clothing, but otherwise they're nondescript. They seem to have a fleece blanket wrapped around their shoulders, which might suggest some sort of emergency relief, like finding somebody who's been lost. But moving on, we get Holly Hunter's second line. The world has been so caught up with what he can do that no one has asked what he should do. So we know, rightfully so, that the entire world is engaged and fascinated by Superman. It also suggests, perhaps, that while time passed, maybe not that much time if this is the first time that the scope of Superman's duties have been called into question. It also means that Superman has been doing good, because if he was doing bad, the very first thing people would ask is whether he should be doing that or not. So Superman has been spending all his time doing good for the whole world, so much good that by the senator's reckoning, the planet has been entranced. Now, of course, we know that the reception isn't universally unquestioning from everything that's been teased up till now, and that reinforces the idea that Holly Hunter plays a politician, using sound bites and oversimplifying things in order to achieve her goals. Boundaries and restraints are fair and reasonable things to raise and to expect. However, unless Superman has done something that he shouldn't have, this suggests that the senator is an adversarial character even if not necessarily wrong or evil. As a literal representative of the people, she may act as a symbol of America's view and position on Superman, and perhaps be converted into an ally by the end of the film. So visually, we are so close in on the statue that it and the night sky are all we can see. The smooth pan and tracking reminds us that we've left the handhelds behind and that Larry Fong is the cinematographer. We see that the statue is stylized and the suit's texture 
and Superman's face don't match the real thing, but nonetheless convey the same idea. Now, I think that was an artistic choice to make Superman more of a symbol than a literal person, but that opens the possibility that there are no photorealistic records of what Superman looks like, however incredibly unlikely that would be. And if you think about it, the Mexico scene gains another level of reverence because the way that celebrity is treated, people would not be reaching out to touch Superman, but instead there would be dozens of smartphones shoved into his face attempting to record the encounter, take selfies, and so on, that the people there gave up on that instinct to record in favor of merely touching him perhaps reinforces the solemnity. The audio that we're getting from the crowd chanting in unison, go home, go home, over and over again. The spotlights light up on the statue's chest, and we see in blood-red paint, false god. Again, such a provocative image because it triggers so many conflicting ideas. First, let's just take away the actual words, and what you have is a statue in honor of Superman, but somebody vandalizing it. A statue in a park would tend to represent the mainstream view, with the money to publish and present such a large and permanent fixture representing how the populace feels about Superman whereas graffiti would tend to represent the views of an angry and dissenting minority who pay for the price of the paint and the risk of being caught defacing a public work. That might seem like a trite cost, since a lot of us are used to watching the head of Jebediah Springfield's monument get cut off at the beginning of every episode of The Simpsons. However, let's not forget that Metropolis is a federal district, that American armed forces fell in battle facing off against the Black Zero, and that their names are likely commemorated on the monument. Vandalizing military monuments is a federal crime, with penalties that can go up to 10 years in prison. Anyone who willfully damages or tries to damage any monument commemorating military service members violates federal law. This includes the vandalism of plaques, structures, statues, or any property paying homage to the armed forces, and they're all covered under the same federal statute. Assuming that the paint is fresh, whoever painted the statue had to do it in daylight before night fell and the spotlights came on. They had to feel that strongly to daringly risk those penalties to make that statement, yet they're desecrating something meant to honor the fallen and a hero that the public intended, and they're desecrating the symbol of the House of El. Of course, once you take the content in, meaning you read the graffiti, however, the story kind of flips some because the statement is literally true. I think Superman would agree he's not a god and holding him up as one is false. Giving the vandal the benefit of the doubt to make such a protest assumes that there are those taking Superman to be a god, which is perhaps consistent with the visuals that we've seen in the teaser up to this point. Without deification, you can receive the previous scenes as reverent or solemnity, but once the word God is spoken, it all snaps into place as deification, with all those religious undertones raised. The Mexicans are trying to touch a god. Superman is bearing a heavenly chariot like the Titan Atlas, the paramilitary bowing before their deity, and so on. It is unsettling, and properly so. And you wonder now if you shouldn't be siding with the Vandal. If Superman is a false god, what is this monument but a false idol to a false god? Of course, it's not all or nothing. You can honor without worship, and you can exalt without deification. But that balance might be something that needs to be sorted out in Batman v Superman. Incidentally, going back to the protesters yelling, go home, it may be the case that the public doesn't know the fate of Krypton. Perhaps, protest chants are not always 100% reasonable. 
But it may be interesting if many of the issues raised by Superman might be things resolved with increased transparency and the overt formation of the Justice League. Maybe. Moving on, we're at a minute and six seconds into a two minute and 12 second trailer. And at that point, we shift from Superman to Batman. Note that despite Batman's name coming first, it's Superman's interaction with the world that leads off this teaser. For those who feared that our first look would be Batman heavy, I hope this trailer dispels those fears since nearly everything substantive we learn is about Superman. And even Batman's big moment in the teaser is shared with Superman's presence. But enough about Superman. For now, let's talk about Batman. The ominous percussion goes silent and the piano resets the audio stage and we get Jeremy Irons as Alfred. That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. This is the last line of dialogue that we get before Batman speaks at the end. I think the visuals and the themes from here on are less coherent, but still well worth discussing. I'm a little conflicted about this line and its delivery because it's very stylized. Up until now, people have been speaking more naturalistically, and those who haven't are either politicians or they're making allegorical references. Out of context, those justifications aren't there for these lines, and this really isn't how people speak generally in real life. But you know what? Who cares? The film is clearly moving in a cinematic direction, so why shouldn't Batman be the gateway towards more cinematic and stylized dialogue? Utterly realistic dialogue between couples generally is pretty weak when compared to cinematic romantic banter. So maybe Batman's the most unrealistic thing in this movie, but his introduction lets us get those unrealistic things that we like to have in the movies, like stunning, stylized visuals, unnaturally slick dialogue, insane action, exaggerated explosions, you get the idea. I'm not saying that we go headlong into fantasy when reality has been so carefully cultivated, but clearly they're nudging the dial. And in the context of the film taken as a whole, we should get a great marriage between the veracity of realism and the delight of fantasy. You know, I'm rambling, so we gotta move on, move on. I think this line is heavily implied to be Batman, but it could apply to someone else easily. I think it carries more meaning if you apply it to Batman because layered against Affleck's dead stare and tightened jaw, it suggests a seething anger against his calm exterior. Behind him, we see elaborate structures of glass and steel, suggesting that we have a fully developed Batcave with racks of gear, equipment, and gadget for Batman's war on crime. The flickering light on Bruce's face implies a bright and large monitor, no doubt displaying something which has inspired him to heavily contemplate donning that suit again. And the suit itself seems dark and foreboding, like it wishes to swallow Bruce alive, and to wear it is to complete some sort of pact for his soul. The texture is completely consistent with ballistic materials, I won't get into that now, but more and more stylized elements keep popping up to show that reality is being dialed back just a bit to let the extraordinary be unleashed. 
So the ominous blaring returns, and this time based in horns. So Superman seems to be percussion, and Batman seems to be a variation of what people are calling the Inception horn. And we glide over the new logo, where they found a way to bring the yellow or the gold into the metallic red symbol by putting it in the light and in the bezel. We see Batman in a high-ceilinged, derelict building, holding something while the rain pours through an opening and lightning flashes. Graffiti all over the walls, including a question mark on a column, but I'll note that the columns are unfluted which is to say no ridges or rises running up and down their length like the ones in the train station scene at the end of Man of Steel. So this is not the train station where Zod met his ultimate fate. The scene is atmospheric, I guess, but it doesn't do much for me in the sense that it doesn't tell a story. In contrast to the next few sequences, which act like a continuous action beat, despite being different sequences. The first part of that sequence shows an oddly shaped flying vehicle on a low altitude approach towards a pier side stretch. It performs a strafing run on armed individuals in civilian clothing and somebody using a truck mounted gun. The strafing run is quite stylized with fireworks exploding from each shot and the pyrotechnic explosions which most likely killed those two hostiles. Was that vehicle the Batwing? Is it a part of the Batmobile? Is it a next generation drone? Why are there armed people in civilian clothing by a pier where their deaths intentionally caused by Batman was Batman in control of that vehicle. These are the kinds of questions that make this short sequence a great inclusion into the teaser because it gets your imagination going. I'm going to need to do more analysis, but for now, I think my prediction is that the Batmobile is modular and can convert from a car to a flying vehicle by losing certain elements. I can imagine that people are going to scramble and try to explain or excuse the deaths as not being Batman. And while that's a possibility, we also have to allow for the possibility that this Batman does not have an absolute prohibition on killing imported from the comics. I'll need more time to develop that thought, but moving on to the next shot, the explosion transitions to a rear shot of the Batmobile moving towards and likely through an explosion, and the speed makes it easy to want to connect the two sequences, but there's no Batmobile on approach on the ground from the flying vehicle's perspective, and if you frame by frame it, the building forming the two alleys aren't the same. These could be minor continuity errors, but I'm inclined to believe that the scenes don't go together the same way in the film. We get a quick glimpse of Batman emerging from some fiery rubble, and his physique and his presence are imposing and heavily informed by Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. I like it, but this isn't the same kind of glory shots that Superman got at the beginning of the trailer. However, speaking of that, there is a nice play of Superman descending from the heavens with a halo while Batman emerges from the depths of hell with fire behind him, playing up on that angelic and demonic comparison. Another quick glimpse of Batman from behind atop something with a skyline spinning in the distance and Batman holding what is clearly a scoped rifle with a muzzle break or something similar on the end. Seemingly a reference to Miller's DKR again, but raising so many possible questions. It's not like the question of Batman and guns has been raised before with the vehicle mounted ones seen on the Batmobile. 
And these are questions I'm excited to talk about, but not right now, because finally we come to the teaser's version of the San Diego Comic-Con clip, which I imagine acted as pre-visualization or inspiration for this seemingly final version that we're seeing here. The bat signal has been removed because that affectation is hard to sustain as an urban myth. And Superman's glowing red eyes aren't used because, well, I've got a theory on that, but for another time. Now here, any reservations that I had about reality giving way to stylized imagery completely evaporate. To me, everything here looks epic and gorgeous. I'm going to have faith that the story is going to support these visuals and that the fight will make enough sense that I'm not going to be doing too many apologetics for it a year from now. We've already heard the fight choreographer weigh in claiming that there's a really intelligent reason for the fight, which we've interpreted and discussed in a past episode. I'm not really a huge fan of The Dark Knight Returns, but I can't deny its significance and impact and the place that it holds in the hearts and the minds of many. And if that is your visual inspiration, they absolutely nailed it. I am not at all an action figure guy or a figurine collector, but I was already reaching for my wallet to throw money at someone to get me a statue of Batman in that armor. Superman lands quickly, but without creating a crater. Granted, he's only falling from a few feet up, but it's possible that this is an indication that he's learned how to land quickly, but without causing damage. That would suggest that Superman has learned more care and restraint with his powers. And now we get Batman's first and only lines in the teaser. Tell me, do you bleed? You will. I am completely on board with the voice modulation. It's a completely logical and realistic approach to the voice in a world of biometrics. Not to mention it allows them to perfect Affleck's performance in a sense. Nolan's Batman trilogy did suffer some from Bale's unintelligible growling and Bane's muffled and affected speech. Here, the voice is crystal clear because the modulations are precise digital adjustments rather than praying that Bale doesn't sprain his vocal cords or that the mic picks up what Bane is doing under the mask. Now, Batman's comments have to be taken together. If Batman only asked, tell me, do you bleed? It would suggest that he may not actually know. That would mean he's going into battle with a Kryptonian, unprepared and lacking intelligence on Superman's vulnerabilities. However, followed by you will means that it was a confident rhetorical question meant to elicit fear and doubt, a threat that Batman may know Superman and his vulnerabilities better than Superman himself. In other words, you can tell me that you've never bled before, but I know how to make you bleed, and I will make you bleed. Obviously, we don't know the context, and we're not supposed to at 11 months out, but it's a solid way to provoke a fight and a nice quotable kind of line. I have so many thoughts about the fight, the armor, the setting, but we've got to hold those back. One last comment about the end of the trailer. Again, I love how they incorporated the yellow into that red Superman symbol, as if it was the marbling in the stone or glowing with heat on a metal surface. It's a small thing, but it is gorgeous. 
and hats off to whomever figured that out. Okay, so it's been edited out so you wouldn't know it, but I nodded off twice while recording this and just about fell out of my chair one other time. So I'm going to cut it off soon and get some sleep. I know there's going to be reactions, comments, criticisms, and questions about this trailer, but I haven't had time to read any of it. I've got my tickets to see the IMAX presentation Monday night, so I'll add those impressions and tackle those questions then, hopefully. But let me just give some quick overall impressions. You know, I love that this appears to be very much a Superman story about his world and his impact, and that Jonathan and Perry are vindicated in their understanding, and that we're continuing with the themes and the reality that has been established. They're embracing the strengths of Man of Steel and carrying them forwards while letting Snyder's stylistic strengths join that reality. I love that they're not taking shortcuts to a plastic or cartoony world that just loves Superman without reservation, but instead reflecting the real differences in opinion and skepticism and concerns of a real and sophisticated world. But they're showing that Superman can withstand that and doesn't crumple in the face of reality. BVS is going to take Superman from Man of Steel to Justice League, and it's not going to take that journey for granted. Instead, I believe it's going to show that his type of heroism is relevant in the real world, even without all those tropes helping you out. In the recent Lex Luthor episode, I think I pined slightly for a billionaire genie to smooth out Superman's path in life, but that was more out of affection for the character than what good character requires of a person. We know that there is triumph in the end, that the League is formed. So let's see Superman go through and triumph over those trials. We'll discuss it further in the IMAX reaction show, but I can already anticipate there's going to be concerns about the tone of this trailer for fans who are hoping for a more optimistic take on Superman. And I would ask those fans to not be too quick to judge and consider the goals of this teaser. It isn't meant to make you feel comfortable and happy, but to build intrigue and drive questions. Remember that Lois Lane and Martha Kent are in this film and remember what they bring to his character. I think there's some neat insights that we can get by comparing this teaser with The Force Awakens and how that might even tie into DC's Convergence event and a wonderful graphic audio story that I was enjoying while flying, Superman The NeverEnding Battle. But I'm on the verge of collapse and we'll discuss it all soon. But for now, I'm Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Apologist, signing off. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman. 
the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Carousel Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. We have an update now on the planet Krypton. It is Superman's home, and a renowned astrophysicist discovered the exact location of the planet just in time for Superman to get a glimpse of it. Superman was able to watch his planet blow up, seeing a dazzling light display that took 27 years to reach the planet Earth. Now, the scientist who helped the Man of Steel locate his home planet in the galaxy, none other than Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who, faster than a speeding bullet, joins us in our studio this morning. Dr. Tyson, good morning. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, it's good for you to be here. <laughs> I'm having trouble keeping a straight face. <laughs> uh, so what, what, what really happened here? I mean, it, it is true that, that you somehow have gotten roped into to a Superman comic. Well, I, I, roped in can't be the right reference there. I, I gleefully accepted the invitation. No arm twisting. To, well, to assist Superman in his time of need. Wouldn't you? Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. I mean, if, if you I mean, asked. If Elastic Man called, no. Or, or, or Aquaman. But Superman is, is a special place in, in the pantheon sure. of, of superheroes. I got a call from DC Comics. Uh-huh. And they said that they wanted to create an issue where Superman would visit the Hayden Planetarium, where I serve as director in New York, New York right. City. And they wanted to portray the planetarium in the comic. So they wanted sort of permission to do that. And, and we said, sure. And then they wanted to know if they could portray me in conversation with Superman, showing him Krypton. So I said, sure. Okay, right? yeah, why, why not? Yeah, why not? But then I said, well, wait a minute. Why do you, what's, what's going on in the story? Well, in the story, Superman observes the destruction of Krypton. Because it takes a long time for light from that, that explosion. Well, so then I said, well, if that's the case, let's explore the astrophysics of this. I mean, why not? They were just ready to draw it and just make the story up. I yeah. said, we might be able to anchor this with real data. How old is Superman? He said, well, we never specify, but we, we say about late 20s. So I said, well, let's get a star that's late 20s light years away. All right. Now, remember when he arrived at Earth, he was an infant. When he was launched from Krypton, he was an infant. So he didn't age at all, essentially. So there are two ways he could have gotten here. Traveling at most of the speed of light where you don't hardly age at all, or traveling through a wormhole. Mm. If you travel through a wormhole, you beat the light beam that left your planet. And so Superman traveled through a wormhole? Well, we have to assert that because if he now sees 27 years later the destruction of Krypton, he essentially got here instantly on this little Moses-style basket that was cast into space. Through the wormhole. It had to be through a wormhole. Okay, so Superman gets here instantly through a wormhole. 27 years after the explosion of Krypton, he's able to see it, this planet. He comes to the planetarium, and my character as portrayed, it is me. I mean, it's it's a cameo for me in the comic. Yeah. I'm wearing my, my trademark vest, and I... And they the even, sun's on it. Yeah, and I said, oh, by the way, if it makes no difference one to you, could you take off a few pounds for me? 
You, you gave them advice. Huh? <laughs> and they said, uh, Dr. Tyson, these are the comics. Everyone looks good. Well, I'm looking at it right here. You look very good. <laughs> I know. You, I'm you pretty buff in the comic. And, yeah. I could be buff in the comic. Well, and, and just, just to be clear, that you, you actually did find a planet that based on all these specs no, could be Krypton. Well, we didn't. Uh, so, no, we can't see actual planets at that distance. You can infer their presence. And I said, we can show sort of the, what we call the light curve of the host star, where a star dims a little bit when the planet eclipses it. But uh, they wanted something more dramatic. And I said, well, then we have to construct a new way to observe the universe for this episode. And so what I said was, let's gather all the telescopes of the world, have them look at this particular star. I found them a star 27 light years away, a red star, and we know that Superman's home star was red. Huh. So we got, I got this, right? You, you got I, it. Right? And if you're into the idea of the star, it's LHS 2520, if you care. Okay. All right. All you amateur astronomers are listening. Exactly. Listening right there. And so I hand them this star. They said, that's it. Let's use that. And then we invent the notion of a planet orbiting it, and we call that planet Krypton. All right. Uh, and so we got that covered. And we, 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 we assemble the armament of all the telescopes of the world to observe – that star system. You have that power to assemble all the telescopes in the comics. Of the world yes, to... I had that power. Okay, and to assemble all the telescopes of the world to turn the entire Earth into one coherent telescope. Wow! All right. If all the telescopes observe the same object at the same time, and you bring the data together in a particular way, you can create what's called an interferometer. We do this all the time, but not on this scale, and we haven't figured out how to do it on this scale yet. Normally, it, all the telescopes would not all agree to do this for exactly. just the sake of a comic book, but in theory, this could happen. In the comic. So not only would they not agree to do it, it would be very hard to do. It's also a challenge beyond our current capacity to assemble the data in such a way to make one coherent image. And I said, we don't know how to do that. And in the comic, they said, don't worry. Superman will. <laughs> you, you, you and Superman, quite a team. Oh, my gosh. So I'm now buds with Superman. And so he comes in and I say, I can't make sense of these data. And he stands over the computer and his mind goes to the computer. And out comes this image beautifully displayed on the dome of the Hayden Planetarium. And it is, I'd hate to give away the story, but it's the, he sees the destruction of his planet. Wow. And he went in. He's been coming every year, apparently, as the story tells it, and knowing that this year would be different from the others. And it's it's a rather solemn story. I mean, at the end, he's his head is bowed he and he's sad. It, and I, I even got a little misty-eyed as I just read through this because here's something he knew already happened, but to see it takes it into another emotional realm. Did and you give him a hug? Ah, it was a huggable moment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the next panel would have had me hugging him, but then that the, the the end with him just sort of bowing his head in solemn reflection of what he just witnessed. Well, you look great in a comic book. You look great in our studios. Thanks for coming by. Well, thanks for having me. It was great being buds with Superman. Like I said, I wouldn't I would not have done it for Aquaman. <laughs> but Superman's another thing. You owed him. You owed him something. I think so. I mean, he's been he's been good to us all my life. So the least I could do is help the man find his home star. So this was. Uh, I felt a, a, an important bit of civic, personal, emotional, intellectual duty to serve that role. And you can read the story in Superman Action Comic, Dr. Tyson. Which one is it? Yeah, Action Comics 14. You're the answer, son.